Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. With all the silly memes floating around the internet about how to live your best life or how to live a good life, it was inevitable that people would talk about using scripture to live a good life. It's an old lie, actually, and it was unavoidable that it would reappear. Oh, come on, Father Mark. You know what they mean. Unfortunately, no, I do not. I do not speak Plato. I do not know what they mean. I do, however, study what is written. If you are studying, hearing, listening, or otherwise memorizing scripture in order to live a good life, you are on the wrong track. No one, Jesus said, is good. We submit to what is written because it is good and we are not. We can never be good. That is why we submit and why I refuse to say, I know what you mean. I have no desire to know your gods because they validate your lies like the fantasy that you can live a good life by following scripture. Show me a man who is perfect like his heavenly father, and I'll introduce you to the depravity of your rules-based order. Psalm 78, Habibi. Free Palestine. Allahu Akbar. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, verses 29 to 31. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 518 of the Bible as Literature podcast. One of the cool things about looking at terms, even if you ignore translations, you begin to see why Father Paul keeps emphasizing in decoding Genesis and why he uses that word code which scholars hate because in their minds it somehow is associated with conspiracy theories. And of course, the New York Times hates that because you might stumble across people who actually report facts instead of regurgitate theories and narratives. But what you discover is that words have an itinerary. You pay attention to terminology Now, when you look at the Greek by itself, you recognize that words 
have an itinerary in Luke Acts specifically. Sometimes there are words that (laughs) appear hardly at all. We've talked about terms like sitting, being set down, reclining, lying down. There's one such word here in the Greek that has a special itinerary in the Gospel of Luke, has a special place in the Luke-Acts diptych. We'll come across that shortly. It's an interesting term. But there are other words that once again appear in the Lucan manuscript that are very common in Greek, but tie to the Hebrew text and make certain passages functional. So paying attention to terminology is important. And hearing other texts, whether it's within the New Testament, within the Luke Acts corpus, or against the backdrop of the Old Testament, honestly, I don't know how people hear the New Testament otherwise. I don't know how they do it. And you don't need to bring any knowledge to the text in order to do it. And this is such a critical point. We imagine that we have to be knowledgeable in order to do this work. It's not that having knowledge isn't valuable, but the text wasn't written for knowledgeable people. It was written for people. The information is there. If we imagine that we have to have a seminary degree or that the text needs apologists or it needs people who went to an institution, then the institution or the body of knowledge becomes the reference. There are codes in the text. They're called consonants. When I look, for example, at consonants on the page, I'm no expert in grammar. I can see the consonants. I can see the Arabic and the Hebrew consonants next to each other. I can see the Greek. I can look through the text with my eyes. So could a 12-year-old who spends the time. We must hear this. Because if we approach the text and imagine that we approach with something, then we become blind like the Pharisees and the supposed lawgivers in the Gospel of Luke. You don't need to read a library of books about the Bible in order to understand the Bible, but that doesn't mean that there is a way to understand it without doing work. The way the ancient people did is they memorized it. They would go to church not just to listen and think and consider and ponder, but also to dedicate to memory the words that were being said. I've seen texts from the 19th and 18th century that say, you know, first thing, if you don't have the words of Scripture in your mind, how can you make a decision? You're going to be making a decision based on your own thoughts and your own words. Just that basic thing of what it means to hear and listen to a text is not just hear in order to consider and muse upon, but to know the words. And one of the things about making these connections between words and making these connections between passages because of the words and the vocabulary is it's a hook for the mind to connect passages in one's thinking so that one isn't thinking about the text outside of the text. It's always the syntax of the text that matters. Outside of that, you're making up your own meaning, and that's dangerous because 
Your thoughts are not my thoughts, says the Lord. You know, scholars love to have discourse with each other. They love to step back and have a dialogue between different bodies of knowledge. But those are different churches. They're different temples. A body of knowledge is a temple. It's a church. That's why people love to say to someone who submits to a teaching, why don't you consider other voices, other perspectives, other points of view? But that's idolatry. And that's what scholarship hates. They hate the smashing of idols, just like priests hate the smashing of the temple. We have to cancel the P, whether it means priest or it means the PhD. There are no P's except the prophetis, the prophet. There is only one reference, and that's what 1 Corinthians teaches us. And scholars hate it. They get real snooty about it. You mean you only listen to Father Paul, Father Mark? Yes! That's the point. Does that mean that Father Paul is your reference? No! Because Father Paul teaches Scripture, and that's what people hate. Why don't you invite other speakers, Father Mark? Because other speakers don't know what they're talking about. Oh, and then people look down their nose. Keep looking, because you're blind. B-L-I-N-D. Deaf, D-E-A-F. And dumb, D-U-M-B. And I know that's politically incorrect. And I don't care, because you're not my reference. This is what people have said to me for decades. Why don't you invite other speakers? I'm saying it publicly because people do not know what they are talking about. That is why. How do you know that? Because when they open their mouth to speak, they talk about Scripture in reference to something else. And in the U.S., it usually boils down to themselves and the almighty dollar. And Levi gave a big reception for him in his house, and there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with them. And before you even say anything, Richard, I know what you're going to say. I just want to say it. It doesn't say at the table. (laughs) That was added into the text. That's the first thing. You know, the second thing I hinted at this, I just want to say this quickly. This word in Greek, which they translate here as gave, P-A-O, corresponds to this all too critical Hebrew word, asa, which means make or do, manufacture. It appears in Genesis chapter 1, verse 7, the first time when God made Ya'as the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse. And Father Paul spends a lot of time talking about the criticality of this word. It is God who makes. And it's used negatively 
also in the Old Testament. I'll give an example from Isaiah in which their land has also been filled with idols. They worship the work of their hands, that which their fingers have made. Asu. Human beings can make idols. God made the expanse functional. It can have different usage in the hands of men. It can have a negative function in the Old Testament. In the hands of God, it can make things functional in a positive sense, as we hear in its first usage in Genesis chapter 1. Here we have Levi of a priestly line. Is it giving? I don't know if that's the right translation. This word in Greek appears numerous times throughout the New Testament. It's a common Greek word. Is Levi making a reception for Jesus? Making a place for hospitality? The other word that stands out to me, to my ears, and this gets to the importance of the Greek. It's this word, katakime. We've talked about this in the past. The word is to lie down, shakab. But I was looking at the Greek, and it struck me. It's only used three times in Luke Acts, and it's used sparingly in the New Testament. It's used in Luke 5, verse 25, and then it's used in Acts chapter 9, verse 33, in reference to the raising of Aeneas. Now, what I find fascinating about Aeneas is that it's a name also from the Homeric epic. Aeneas was a mythical hero of Troy and of Rome. He was the son of the goddess Aphrodite and a member of the royal line of Troy. He was a folkloric hero among the Romans, so much so that the family of Julius Caesar and ultimately of Augustus claimed that they were descendants of Aeneas. So you have in the Lucan corpus a passage in chapter 9, verse 33, that uses the same verb in a passage that refers to the healing and the lifting up of Aeneas from the bed of sickness, who was bedridden for eight years. We're living in the era of Augustus, and Luke Acts is liberating Aeneas from his sickness under the boot of Augustus. So that's a little bit of a side story, but it's an example. I mean, there's this twist of fate. If you allow the terminology to connect Luke with Acts, which I don't think is a stretch, there's this twist of fate where Jesus now is liberating the Greeks from the Caesars. Yeah, and these turns that we have are so fascinating. We have Levi, who is named as a priest and functions as a tax collector. We have the people who are reclining at the feast. They're laying down at the feast in the same way the paralytic was lying on his stretcher. It's the same word that's used in both passages just a few verses before. Levi was called, and he didn't just host Jesus. All these 
other tax collectors came. Of course they did. Who else is going to hang out with a tax collector? He doesn't have any other friends. He's only got tax collectors. And this word, though he is used another time later in this book in Luke 14, 13, where he says, but when you make a feast, call the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind. Jesus says this is the point of having a feast. It's so that you can offer something to the poor. You offer this. It's not so you can get something in return. You give it to those who can't give you anything in return. Because the bounty that you serve at your table comes from the Lord. You only have it so that the poor then can receive it. Your possession of all that food in order to put on a banquet is a judgment on you. Will you use this bounty that was given to you as a way of fulfilling the teaching that you are to be giving this to those who can't do it themselves. I was at a church one time, and the church was in a neighborhood that was close to a poor neighborhood. And somebody would come to coffee hour. I don't know how he found out about coffee hour, but he'd show up at coffee hour just randomly. Eventually, the priest shooed him away and said, you know, really, this is for the community. If you're going to have this, you should be participating more in the community which of course is blasphemy. The reason you have coffee hour is not to reward people for going to communion. If so, why do they go to communion? My kids have been saying that for a long time. You know, I'd rather just go to coffee hour, dad. Thanks. But Jesus says the reason why you have the dohi is so that the poor can be fed. That's the reason. Levi and giving to his buddies, we'll see how it ends up for him. Jesus doesn't say anything. We'll see how it goes. But Jesus will say that I come for a very specific purpose, which is to give to those who are in need. So if you're going to put on a feast, make sure it's for those who are in need. The Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? The word that jumped out immediately to my ears was this word grumbling, rohizo, which means literally to mutter or to murmur in Hebrew, lon. This is fascinating, actually, to lodge or to pass the night, but also to murmur, to grumble. It's related possibly to the Arabic lama, which means to blame. Now, the Hebrew is denominated from the word layil, Arabic layl. Everybody knows those words are connected. That's my daughter's name, Layla. It's very popular in Arabic folklore, which means night. But the connection is intuitive because when do people grumble? You even have a passage in the New Testament, in the Gospel of Luke. What is whispered in the dark will be shouted from the rooftops. People murmur in the shadows. You have this famous passage in Exodus, but the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled, yalen, against Moses and said, why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Coming back to this passage... You have Levi who has made a table. It doesn't say table, but he's made a place of fellowship. The translators are interpreting table, even though it's invalid to interpret anything. There's a place of fellowship, of potential hospitality. And 
it's been saying teachers of the law, and now it's saying the Ramatis, the Pharisees and their Ramatis, Afton i Ramatis. What do they do? They begin grumbling, murmuring, complaining. And the Arabic here is useful if you consider the Semitic context because they're grumbling, bordering on blaming. They are blaming, almost accusing, which is what you do when you preach. It's a kind of prophetic rhetoric. You blame. There's a place for it, but it's not you who blame. It's the text that assigns blame. But because they're self-referential, their murmuring is ungodly in a very technical sense because they bring themselves as the reference. They are their own body. In that sense of 1 Corinthians, your reference is not the written text. It's a body that pertains to your own body of knowledge. You are your own whatever. It's not what pertains to God's instruction. So they are just, you know, grumbling, complaining, murmuring against God because they are their own God unto themselves. And they're doing so against aftu tus matitas, the disciples of Jesus, against his disciples, at pros aftu, at his disciples. It's disgusting. And what are they complaining about? The fact that they're having fellowship with tax collectors and sinners. They sound like the people you mentioned in a recent episode, Richard, I think it was a couple weeks ago, where someone was trying to make the case that the early church was all about deciding who Jesus should associate with. Who's in and who's out? Disgusting. Disgusting. We can tell right away that the Pharisees and their scribes had already made their decision about who these people were. They say sitting with publicans and sinners. Where did the sinners come from? When Luke describes the feast in 29, it's publicans and others. (laughs) It's just as other people. When the Pharisees characterize the publicans and the others, it's publicans and sinners. So they already have their mind made up. But on what basis? Scribes are not ignorant of Scripture. That's the thing that's most tragic about this. They know what the basis of the judgment is, and this is what they say. They can just go into a room and they can see who are the sanctified and who are the sinners. How do they make these decisions? Why aren't they considering in their hearts the law of God? Why instead are they grumbling to the disciples of Jesus, not to Jesus, behind his back already, undermining? their teacher, in the same room. Imagine, they go to the students and they say, who does your teacher think he is? This is the dynamic of the room. But, you know, anytime a Christian apologist goes around to people to try to convert them, what are they saying? 
Who do you think you are? Who do you think your teacher is? Your teacher's been lying to you all this time. All the people who've taught you up to this point have lied to you. They don't know what they're talking about. It's insulting. It's dishonorable. And this way that they're described. Now, one of the problems is that because the Bible is taken in such a shallow way as we think that tax collectors, by definition, are sinners because it says tax collectors and sinners. Well, first of all, these are the words of the Pharisees, not of the narrator or of Jesus. And second, they're two separate things here. They're listed out separately. It doesn't say sinful tax collectors. So we characterize them just because we have a shallow reading of this, and we have to be careful. What does it mean by tax collectors and sinners? We can't group them together. Now, of course, tax collectors, as we've mentioned before, were in cahoots with the Roman government and were disloyal to Jewish people, and you know this was a tendency that they had, and so this is definitely something that's problematic. But is it problematic according to Torah? Eh, that's a different question. Do we find it repugnant? Maybe. Does God? Different question. So we're not allowed to walk in the room and figure out who's in and who's out. Like you mentioned, Father, this website, here's who's in and here's who's out. Just look at the frequently asked questions and you'll know if you're in or out. Then you're just like the rich man. How do I attain eternal life? When I was a kid, I learned the most important lesson from my dad, and I remember it clearly. He said to me, it is possible for everyone else to be wrong and for one person to be right. That's all I have to say on the matter. It is possible. And in 2024, it's very clear that it is possible. And Jesus answered and said to them, it is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. And this word, kakos, which means in Greek, bad in an evil way, aligns to this beautiful root in Hebrew, kalel, it's with a cough for all of you DC fans who think I'm talking about one of the names from the planet Krypton. I am not. It's cough, lamed, lamed, which means to be small, insignificant. It does mean be fast, but again, it's with a cough. It's not kalel. It also means to be cursed, to be belittled. So it makes sense, it's intuitive why it would be aligned in the Septuagint as kakos, to be bad in an evil way. In Arabic, there is a cognate, qalil, which is to be belittled, to be reduced, something minimized, light, slight, or trivial. You shall not curse taqalel, a deaf man, nor place a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall revere your God. I am the Lord, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 14. The passage from Leviticus, once again, whenever you're dealing with bringing sight to the blind or lifting up someone from the bed of sickness, Leviticus 
is highly functional, especially with a root like Kalel, Kaf Lamed Lamed, which is used so sparingly, it appears in Leviticus just a couple times, and then again in Isaiah. It appears elsewhere with different usages, but specifically as it aligns to Kakos, it's used sparingly, which is germane because of its usage in Leviticus, where you don't want to get in the way of taking care of those in need, which is precisely how these supposed learned men are behaving. Though they are full of knowledge, they are the ones who are in need of a physician. They don't realize that they are the ones who are cursed and in need of belittling. They are the ones who are sick. It's classic scripture. You must approach the text as though you are the one who is cursed. You cannot approach it as though you already got it, as though you have something, as though you know something. That's why the text must be stripped of its vowels. You have to approach it every time you crack the book open as a child who has no idea what Qaf, Lamed, Lamed means. It doesn't mean anything. It's just a Qaf, a Lamed, and a Lamed. In some ways, not having knowledge is an advantage because it forces you to accept that you don't know anything and the text is the reference. And you have to work at it. So whether you're a Pharisee who has it memorized or a nobody from nowhere who doesn't have it memorized, you both are staring at a cough, a lamid, and a lamid. And it's those three consonants that hold the authority of God for everyone. And no one has anything to say or do except to figure out how those three consonants function and then to do them. You're not to dialogue about the three consonants with each other or anyone else. You are to aslama to these three consonants. The verse points to the fact that if you are whole, if you've got it, if you've figured it out, then you don't need any of this. So this idea of being sick, I mean, it's linked back with the paralytic before. The paralytic's friends had faith and they trusted. And this is what allowed the paralytic to be whole. Jesus is the physician because he teaches the scripture and the friends of the paralytic believed him. But these guys want to undermine the friends of Levi so that they no longer trust in this one who teaches scripture. And therefore, if they no longer trust, then they don't have a hope of being made whole. If you're not going to go to the doctor, the doctor can't help you. If you're going to go to the doctor and then not do what he tells you to do, you just wasted an opportunity to get better. If you're going to go home and evaluate what your doctor said, good luck. It may work. It may not. But you no longer have trust in the doctor. That's for sure. The response that Jesus has to this grumbling is, who do you want me to hang out with? I'm here to teach, and if there's someone who's going to listen, I'm going to hang out with them. 
and the people who need to hear me will listen and people like you who already have it figured out have no need. God be with you. Good luck to you with your own knowledge. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.